This episode of The Capsule in Conversation is brought to you by WeCure. A leader in health tourism, WeCure offers specialist EMDR trauma treatment whilst you reflect and heal in the Mediterranean. Reset your mind and well-being. Speak to WeCure. WeCure.co.uk forward slash capsule. Hello everyone, welcome back to the Capsule in Conversation. I'm Natalie Anderson and today I'm joined by one of the leading voices in fashion and beauty, editor-in-chief of Glamour magazine, Deborah Joseph, to talk representation, racial identity and ripping up the rule book. So settle down, turn us up and get ready to join in with our conversation. so much for joining us. I hope you've all had a wonderful week. We are officially on the Christmas countdown now. So if you haven't already, it's time to whack on Michael Bublé, pour yourself a Baileys and maybe, just maybe, watch Love Actually. Let's crack on with the festive feels, eh? We need to do all we can at the minute to inject a bit of much needed happiness into our lives. However, I for one am feeling very happy today as I'm joined by someone I've admired for many years, being an avid collector of magazines as you all know, and especially the one that she's now the editor-in-chief of, it's the fabulous Deborah Joseph. Deborah, thank you so much for joining me today. It's an absolute pleasure to have you with me. Now before we get down to all of the many things I wanted to talk to you about, how are you doing? How are you navigating 2020? Well, my laptop's not working today, so I'm currently on my phone, which is stacked on about 10 cookery (laughs) books. So it's not the most professional setting I've ever had. But other than that, all good, actually. Um, Yeah, all good. My kids are at school. I'm sitting in the kitchen working. My husband's in the front room working. I only work four and a half days a week. I have Friday afternoon off. And if I can, I work from home Friday mornings. So does that um, work-life balance work better for you? Because you've got three children, don't you? I was given half a day a week off by my boss because I I said to him, you know, I just want one day a week I can pick pick up my kids and be around in the afternoon. And that meant so much to me. So yes, it 100%. Um, helps with the work-life balance because you know we work hard and fast at Glamour and we get a lot done in the five days that we work so even in four and a half days I have a very very busy week and I just really wanted a half a day to focus on my kids and being a mum and it's made a huge difference to me. I mean, it's really good, actually, that your boss kind of has, you know, met you in the middle with that, because there's so many organisations that really don't get it. They don't get what that struggle is, being a working mum, you know, being the top of your game, and you want to perform and you want to do your job, something that you've trained to do your whole life. And then, but you equally want to be a hands-on mum. I know I've experienced that, and it's why I've changed up my career slightly, is because it's so precious, those years with them, isn't it? I mean, totally. And I think, you know, it is really amazing to have a boss that, and, you know, my boss has got three kids and his wife is a really successful woman. So I think he understands what that looks like. And it is having the empathy of a business and a, and a boss, is, it makes a big difference to your life. It really, really does. It definitely allows your staff, I think, to also to have loyalty to the company. 
Because I think once you instill that in people and they want to work hard and they want to get everything done, as you said, you know, in that that five days a week. I mean, I'm shocked that you're telling me, you know, that that's kind of how you produce everything in such a, you know, a short amount of time, really, because the amount of things that you get out and the brilliant covers that you do, it's it's amazing. So it clearly does work. And I think many people have found that this year that actually giving people a little bit more flexibility is actually much more beneficial for their businesses, isn't it? I think so. I think, you know, I've got an extra two hours a day. Um, I'm not commuting. So that's extra two hours a day for myself, for my family. I cook dinner for my kids in that time, whereas I'd normally be on the tube. So it's made a huge difference. And I think it's probably made all businesses reconsider whether we really do need to be at our desk the whole time. I mean, Glam is digital first anyway, so it wasn't a massive shift for us. We basically got a laptop brought them home and just did our job as usual and we're on zoom twice a day and we're always laughing and joking and being creative on zoom so we meet up every now and again I do miss being in person with the team because I've got a really fun team and we laugh constantly so I do kind of miss that interaction but I think we probably work even a bit harder there's less distractions Definitely. Now, as I said, as I introduced you, I am having to stop myself from fangirling a bit as I've been an admirer of yours for many years from your original role as associate editor at Glamour back when it launched, what, 19 years ago. I was a student then um, at drama school, had every issue. And then to Brides Magazine, where you were the editor during the time when I was newly engaged and then married. Then you were at the Daily Mail and now obviously back at Glamour at the helm of it as it continues its reign in the digital space. I mean, personally for me, I feel like your voice has been with me through so many key chapters of my life. So how does it feel for you knowing that you've been so influential to a whole generation of women who've grown with you? Well, it's funny. A, I never think about that. No one's really ever said that to me before because I, I actually took about six years out of um, the magazine industry. So when I came back to Glamour, I'd been out of it for so long. Most of my team hadn't even been in the industry for six years. So they knew nothing about my history or my background. Um, oh, I mean, how dare they? <laughs> I mean, it's a totally different generation. You know, if they, they start in an industry for six years and somebody isn't in it, they just don't know about you. Um, but I think earlier on, and I, I you know, the concept of influencing people and being an authority and being um, having to be conscious about what messaging you're putting out there, I think that's come mainly with social media. Previously, it was only a one-way conversation in print. You know, you'd put the magazine out, you wouldn't really hear back what people thought of it um, when, until maybe you'd receive a handwritten letter from people or then an email from people. It wasn't a two-way conversation. So you didn't really, I don't think I ever thought, also I was very young when you're young, you don't think about these things, what influence are you having on people? Um, whereas now I think also becoming a mum has made me much more conscious of the messaging I'm putting out there. Whereas when I was young, I just thought, this is a fun idea, this is a fun piece, this is an interesting celebrity, we should definitely do it. It's the kind of thing that a glamour girl or a Daily Mail woman would be interested in and you just put it out there. I don't think I gave it much thought. Whereas now I think about it all the time, like what's the messaging we're giving? Is this appropriate for women? Is this how the world that I want my daughters and my son growing up in? I think about that a lot. I mean, for, for me, you know, those there was a key point in my life where I was getting married and you were the editor of Brides Magazine at the time. And, you know, you have your editor's letter at the front. Yeah. And just everything about that magazine at that time was it was like a bible to me I loved it so, yeah. so many other women I know you know you that was the first thing that as well I gave to my friend when she got engaged was I was like you need brides magazine it's like the bible of getting married and you know your 
your steer on things and your your um, approach to things has definitely been a massive influence. And as you say, it's continuing now to, you know, Glamour is digital. And as you've previously described it, it's kind of future-proofed itself by going into that space. Do you think it was essential to move the title into that place as one of the leading global beauty brands, given that so much of the anything that's consumed now is done via Instagram or, you know, or online or TikTok or Facebook. It's, it's produced by influencers. It was, it was absolutely crucial because it was a, it was a hundred percent a business decision. So it was a decision made by my publisher, Camilla Newman, before I came on board, I think she literally looked at the business plan for the future for the following three years and just couldn't see, it just wasn't profitable anymore. She couldn't see how she could ever make it profitable. So it was a kind of do or die situation. Situation. It was like either we need to transform and pivot this brand to a digital brand. Most of our audience were consuming um, uh, the content on their mobile phones. It was something like 83% of the glam audience was consuming content on the mobile phone. And I think she just thought it's now or never. And I think she was right. I think looking back on three years, had Glamour continued just in print, it just wouldn't exist now. From a financial perspective, it just wouldn't be a viable business. Um, so I think from that perspective, it was very brave of her and very clever. I think also she looked at where, where in, what, what wasn't being um, factored in. No one was really owning the beauty space at the time online in the UK. They were in America, but not in the UK. So again, beauty has always been such a massive part of the Glamour brand since the day it launched. And I think she was again, very clever in thinking, right, we're gonna shift the strategy and move it beauty first. So when I arrived, I was basically given this new strategy. I was told, right, okay, we wanna be beauty first, we wanna be digital first, off you go. And then I had to come up with a plan and a strategy of how to make that work. But that was fundamentally a, a very much a business decision that thankfully three years on has pro- proved to be fruitful. Definitely, because I think as well, you know, um, in the earlier days, as you said earlier, it was it was the journalists kind of feeding out what what we should be wearing, what we should be using, what was the next fad, anything. Whereas now, there's so much going on around us that I love the fact that you pick up on those trends, you pick up on Instagram. I mean, do you think that by doing that, that gives you a more engaged reader by you know taking what's going on in society around you as your influence? Well, I think previously the main influence was, say, the catwalks, for example, or celebrities on the red carpet. They were our main influence 18, 20 years ago when Glamour first launched. That's who we used to look at for trends and stuff. Obviously, social media, again, just changed that completely. And suddenly, real women like you were growing big followings, massive influence, shifting and changing conversations. And you also came into the content space. So it really transformed unbelievably in a very, very short space of time. And, you know, every morning before we have a features meeting, I always have a quick look on Instagram as well as reading the newspaper, as well as looking on other social media to see what the trending conversations are, what the topics are, what the looks are. And I think, you know, social media massively influences people. So for us not to reflect that and write about it would be remiss of us. I mean, when you first took over at Glamour in 2018, you know, one of your first things that you did was you put three influencers on the cover, which was really brave. And I, I, you know, you had to kind of convince your boss that that was a good move, didn't you? Because they were so used to seeing the celebrity faces. And, you know, tell me about that conversation. I think Glamour had always been forward thinking. They'd had an influencer on the cover once before. Um, but, you know, I, I was basically, as I said, what, what I was told was we want to go beauty first, we want to go digital first. And the first thing that came to my head was, well, the real stars right this moment in the beauty and the digital space are beauty influencers like Hudda Katan, um, 
that, that was the first thing I thought of. So to me, it was a really obvious decision. Um, but then when I went to show my boss, he didn't know who they were. He didn't know who these three influencers. He never heard of Patricia Bright. I think he'd heard of Zoella, but I think everybody has. She's kind yeah. of, she's kind of gone beyond social media. But at the time, her dope was a super successful businesswoman, but wasn't necessarily a household name beyond the beauty industry. And I remember having to show him, you know search online between someone like Katy Perry and someone like Huda and it was the same search it was the same search online so I was like if we want to be big in the digital space this is where the conversation is and he really supported me and it was hugely successful it was really interesting I think some brands at the time weren't that behind it they were like oh gosh is glamour going to move into a different direction away from celebrities which has always been you know it's always attracted big celebrity names but I think it can all mix together you know there's no one rule anymore definitely not not with the online space you know I mean I've I've been lucky enough to kind of see it from both sides because my you know my early career when I was acting and I was dealing with like celebrity lifestyle and everything and then now in this space where I am as a working mom you know influencing and uh, having my podcast it's I've been able to see and had to move my business I've had to really think about if I continue just down the acting ro- road I'm I'm going to get left behind because actually everything is going digital now everything's being consumed on Netflix on you know on Amazon streaming services we're moving things onto YouTube things have been made specifically specifically for YouTube. So we've all had to make that step across. I mean, if we speak about covers, when I was, you know, in the early 2000s and Britney was gracing the cover and, you know, we had Kate Winslet, I had every issue of Glamour. I loved it so much. Yeah, oh my God, I collected it right from day one. The Kate Winslet first issue with the orange and the blue. And at college, I used to have them all stacked up. I loved it so much. Um, but I mean, it was gra- it was groundbreaking. It, it was, was, and the handbag size. I, I remember when I started there, I, was, I, was, I think I was like this third employee. And I remember the editor then, Joe, saying to me, right, we've got two options. We can either go for a big magazine, as everyone else is, or we can go for this handbag size one. And I'm going to go for the handbag size one. I remember going, oh, really? I remember feeling quite scared at the concept of it but she had such a strong vision for it and she really revolutionized the magazine market there was no question about it and I love you know I worked there for five years initially and it was it was groundbreaking to be part of watching a brand grow from a blank piece of paper to being such a successful magazine it was it was really it was a privilege to work on on the launch of it I think that filtered through, you know, I think it filtered through to the reader because I used to get it when I was auditioning in London, I used to pick it. It was the one magazine that I would fit into my handbag with my scripts. And I just, yeah, I obsessed over it. I loved it, but it really came through how much it was bright and it was, they had, you know, there was so much energy about it. But now looking back, when I look at all those covers, it's very apparent to me how much um, there was a lack of diversity at that time. And I think obviously now, you know, you, again, in the self-love issue that you did this year, you had Katie Piper on the front cover, you know, you had Han and Kerr on the front cover as well. You were really brave in going, no, actually, these people need to be represent, uh, represented. Do you think that now taking the brand forward, that representation is key in your messaging? I mean, I mean, anybody who looks at what we do now, they can see everything we do is is covering the conversation around representation. You know, we very much see ourselves as a platform for 
you know, multiple voices, a diverse set of voices. But, you know, Glamour was actually originally, when it launched in America, it was one of the first magazines ever to put a black woman on the cover. So it's got a history of representation. It's not something new that I've suddenly introduced. And I definitely think when Glamour started 20 years ago, almost, in March, it'll be 20 years, I think it was a different time. And, you know, all editors were constricted by rules from their companies, from their bosses that didn't particularly encourage representation. And I, you know, I've written about this myself. I experienced it myself that I was told, you know, don't put black women on the cover. Don't put dark brown um, skinned women on the cover. They won't sell. And I was actively told that. And so was every editor that I knew at the time. And it it was an open secret. You know, I'm not saying anything that people didn't know at the time. And I knew it was wrong. I took a cover to my boss at the time. And um, she was a Brazilian model. And she had exactly the same skin color as me, but blue eyes. And I remember him looking at me and going, she's a little bit dusky. Do you mind taking her back? and bringing somebody else. So then I had to go back with a, with a blonde cover and, and that passed through. And that's just the way it was those days. It really was the way it was. And no one was, no one was saying anything about it. So we all kind of kept quiet. I did test the waters. And now I think I should have shouted harder. But I was scared for my own job at the time because I thought I'd be seen as troublesome or difficult. And, you know, again, I wrote in the Times, you know, when I first started in the industry, I had NEW, not entirely white, written on yeah. my CV. So I already felt like an outsider that was lucky to have a place at the table. Didn't really feel I could challenge these narratives. Whereas when I came back um, into the industry three years ago, the conversation had changed so much. Diversity was already a massive conversation at Condé Nast and I'm sure at the publishing houses. And we were actively encouraged to be diverse. So, you know, I no longer had to fight that. It was amazing. It was, it was encouraged and that's how it should be. I mean, I read that piece that you wrote um, for for the Times, and it really actually inspired me to kind of contact you and say I really want to talk to you because I related to your story so much, having dark skin, dark hair, growing up in the nineteen eighties in Bradford, especially. It was it was a difficult time, and of the placement of where I where I identified and where I put myself, and in what box, and you know, people going, "Well, are you white, or are you brown, or are you this, or?" And the feelings that I like—I nearly cried actually reading that. But your, your how truthful you were about your mixed heritage, your faith as well, and how that's led to you experiencing negativity, discrimination. Do you think that having that early on in your life that's led to you really wanting to stand up for those voices that aren't being heard, and you know? Um, give them a platform so that we can share stories and that those voices do need to be heard. Definitely. I mean, I think that anybody who's received discrimination, you know, as I wrote in my piece for anyone who's not read it, you know, that I've received discrimination. You know, I'm three quarters Iranian. I've received discrimination for being brown, but I'm also Jewish and I've received anti-Semitism. So I've had it on both sides. Um, And... Also, I'm the granddaughter of a Holocaust survivor. And, you know, I I think I've got a moral duty to make sure that other people um, don't experience what my family have experienced in the past few generations. I think I've been relatively lucky. You know, we've we've lived in peacetime the whole of my life. And yes, I have had to deal with discrimination, but it's nothing to the degree that my grandma did in Germany, in Nazi Germany. And it's nothing to the degree, degree that the black community received in the UK. So I think I've got moral duty now to speak out and to make those voices heard. I do. I really believe that. 
And from your own point of view, I mean, for me, it definitely gave me a sense of um, a deep sense of compassion for people of colour as to what if I was experiencing being targeted just for, you know, being a light brown skin, then what what were my other friends exactly experiencing? Exactly. Painful. Well, we're, we're, you know, we're so light brown, you and I, that we also pass as white sometimes. So um, we don't even know what it feels like in the UK to be um, a black woman trying to get in, into the workplace or just, you know, the way they're treated in hospitals. I've spoken to cancer patients and the, the way that they're treated differently. It's just, it's, it's beyond comprehension. Um, and, you know, I think wh- where you can speak out, you absolutely should. And where you can influence, you absolutely should. And, you know, Glamour's got an 8 million strong platform. And I think that I have to use my influence for good in that respect. As I said, I see it as a moral duty. I think that definitely comes across, you know, for me when, you know, it's kept me as a reader how challenging the magazine is. You know, there's nothing that you don't really cover, you know, sexuality, inclusion, body diversity. I mean... As you said, you know, in 1939, when it was first launched, it was kind of, it did have that um, uh, reputation for challenging. But I feel like in this time, it's even more dynamic in that that sense. That it, there's a sense of almost ripping up the rule book and going, you know what, there's nothing that we're not going to cover. And I think that does maybe come down from you, Deborah, of going, right, okay, what are we going to focus on? What are we going to lift the lid on? Would you say that's fair? I've got a really outspoken team and they're a diverse team and they bring their perspective to the table every day. And this is why it's important to have diversity in the workplace. If you don't have diverse voices in your team, then they're not get, you're not even going to ha- know what you should be speaking about, especially in journalism. You have to have diversity at the table. So every morning we have a meeting at 9.30 and the team all discuss their own personal experiences, what they've read in the news. And it's funny, we all pick up different stories that resonate with us wow. based on our own personal experiences. Um, also, there's an age element here. I'm, I'm 46. I'm editing you know, a brand that's for... Um, Gen Z and millennials, most of my team are Gen Z and millennial. So they also bring in stories and perspectives and, you know, around diversity that are very different to the ones I bring in. So I do think that that's what makes Glamour dynamic. It's, it's, the, it's the multiple voices of the team that come together and push things forward. And, you know, I'm really lucky to be surrounded by by such dynamic people, actually. I mean, if you saw one of our meetings, they're, they're great fun. They're wild. Really they're wild. Like, they're wild. I can't come, in. Can I come in, please, just to be yeah. in. Nothing is off boundary. Nothing. Everything is talked about. Yeah. I love that, though. I mean, moving away um, into a slightly different area, another thing I really wanted to talk to you about today was your journey with having your family. You know, you've again, you've spoken openly about this, and it's something that many women will relate to. You're a mum now to three beautiful children, but your road to having your family wasn't easy, was it? It was very difficult. Very difficult. Very. Yeah, it took me almost five, it took me four and a half years to fall pregnant. So actually the whole time I was working as the editor of Brides, <gasps> I was trying for a baby. I was having IVF for uh, four and a half years. That I was editor of Brides, I was, I was having IVF. So it was really, really tough. And actually Brides saved me. It really saved me. I think having a job that I loved and it was, you know, a light topic. Weddings are such a lovely thing to write about every day. And it was, it just really got me through a very, very dark and happy period in my life. And I'm very thankful to that to have that to have had that job at the time that I did um yes it was very very difficult but during those you know rounds of IVF and the constant what I imagine must be a roller coaster of hope then disappointment then hope and then how yes. 
emotionally did you cope you know what did you do to keep going and obviously you had your job but you know what what other things did you turn to well I, I don't think I did cope very well it was probably the most miserable time in my life it was terrible I was just so bleak and I really never thought I was going to have a baby I was told by various doctors that I couldn't have children and to me it was absolute heartbreak because all I'd ever wanted was to have a family and I know not everybody feels that way but I did so for me it was the worst possible news I could receive um I, what did I do I worked as I said I really just got my head down and got on my job um what did I do I did acupuncture did some counseling some therapy um did a bit of CBT um I think that was it really I just I don't know I just put one one foot in front of the other I think that's what I did, really, just took one one day at a time. I mean, for, for me, you know, the fact that you, you went so into your job, I think for me, you know, pregnancy loss and infertility, it's, it's, it has such a huge impact on our identity as women because it's almost like, you know, you're not being able to do what you're supposedly designed to do. And that sense of, you know, guilt, shame, fail, failure. I think I've had experience of this, like, you know, 10 years ago, my first pregnancy and the sense of failure, you then, I don't know if you're like me, become an overachiever. Like you have to, you have to succeed at something because in all other aspects, it's not working out. And I don't know if that was the same for you, those, those feelings of um, guilt or failure, shame. Yeah, I definitely felt failure and shame. I mean, there's so much shame about around infertility. Shame is a massive issue with it, isn't it? You feel there's so much social pressure when you get married. Within 12 months, everyone's looking at your stomach. And someone even, I think I've been married about two years and I saw somebody I hadn't seen for a while and they put their hand on my stomach and they went, are you? Oh no, you've just put on the mandatory £10 that everyone does when they get married. I had to leave the wedding. I had to leave the wedding. I was so upset that someone would do that to me. It was a man actually who did that. But I think you feel like your body is letting you down. It's not doing what it, it's supposed to do. And pe it, there's just so much stigma around infertility and childlessness. And it's difficult even for women who don't want children. They still ask the same questions, even though it's their personal choice. In my case, it wasn't my personal choice. But the questions and the things that people used to say to me were just absolutely astonishing. Really, really astonishing. The assumptions that, well, you're too busy being a career woman, aren't you? So you don't want children. And um, I, I, I can't, oh, your life hasn't really moved on, has it? Because you haven't had children. Even though I'd got a new job and moved house, according to this person, my life hadn't moved on. And just those little diggy comments the whole time, it really made life very difficult. I stopped you know, I, I started avoiding certain social situations. I started avoiding certain friends, certain people. And I know that I'm not, I wasn't alone. I'm, you know, I've spoken to loads of other women who are, who are going through IVF and they feel exactly the same as me. You know, it affects your friendships, it affects your marriage, it affects your mental health, your physical health, it affects your bank balance. It really is an all-consuming issue that I don't think people talk about enough, which is why I now talk about it. Because, you know, I was very private about it at the time. I did tell a few friends, but not many. And I swore them to secrecy. And um, I told, I think, one or two colleagues at work. But on the whole, I kept it very quiet. Um, now looking back, because it was shameful. And also, I just thought it's no one else's business. You know, you're not asking a friend, oh, did you have sex last night to try for a baby? So why would I have to discuss when I've gone for a round of IVF? And then people would ring me two weeks later and say, well, well, and I'm like, I'm not ringing you two weeks after you've had sex to see if you're pregnant. You know, so why, why you know, it's just a very weird situation. Um, 
I was very, very lucky that I ended up having children. It was, you know, I was very I mean, lucky. Your story of how, you know, what you went through, I read your story and it was astonishing to me what you'd gone through when you went to the clinic, when you looked into your stomach and you turned out you had an allergy with egg. Now, obviously, yeah. I know that's not going to, you know, be um, for the same case for every woman out there. But just, you know, if you talk me through as well, that discovery of what happened whilst you were there and how, you know, cleaning out your gut really helped the, the situation later on. So I'd had six rounds of IVF and every time I'd had it, I was coming out in hives. I was itching like crazy. I was absolutely crazy itching. And then one day, just randomly, I was having dinner and I must have eaten an egg and my fingers swelled up into welts, my thighs, my back, the whole of my body had welts all over it. And um, I didn't realize it was egg though. I, I just was like, what am I eating? I think I was eating some bread and some egg and some other bits and bobs. So I then spent months trying to work out what it was that I was allergic to. And I think the reason I became so allergic to it was because I was on a certain tablet that um, suppresses your immune system. And I think that's what, what did it. Mm. Um, and what did I do? I went to a place called the Viva Maya Clinic in Austria, which is known to improve your gut health. And I actually just went because I'd finished um, my rounds of IVF. I wasn't, I, just, I wasn't gonna do any more after six. We were actually gonna then have surrogacy. And I wanted to clear my body out. I wanted to clear all the years of hormones that I'd had put in it, all the years of stress that I'd put on my body. I just wanted to clear it out. So I went there and they were the ones who actually did a, a, an allergy test and told me I was allergic to egg. And they also told me I was intolerant to dairy. and. I can't remember. I think it might have been them who said to me, you know, when you have IVF, the solution that they put around the embryo before they put the embryo back in your body is covered in an egg solution. And so it just suddenly made sense. Of course, IVF didn't agree with me because I was constantly having something put into my body that, that my body was rejecting. So, you know, that was, that was one area of it. But I then, when I left there for three months, I cut out egg and dairy and a load of other stuff, but mainly egg and dairy. And within three months, I'd fallen pregnant naturally. And so it was, it was, was really that? remarkable. I mean, that feeling of seeing that pregnancy test and it be positive. Yes. How did that feel for you? Couldn't believe my eyes. I literally couldn't believe my eyes. I really, truly couldn't. I couldn't. Did, was, you just, I, in fact, I, I rang my husband up at work and I said, um, are you in a meeting? Are you on your own? You know, I need to talk to you. Something's happened. And the first thing that came out of his mouth was, has the dog died? Has the dog been run over? Because he didn't, it didn't even occur to him that I could be pregnant. It just wasn't even in our thinking or repertoire that I would ever fall pregnant naturally. Um, yeah, it was a miracle. It was a and real so miracle. during that pregnancy, how... Did you feel at every point during the pregnancy? Were you nervous? Were you, you know, did you embrace it? Did you enjoy it? Or were you slightly hesitant at, at, throughout the pregnancy? I think I was very hesitant. I was really hesitant. I, I, I remember, you know, I wouldn't fly for the whole of the pregnancy. Um, and what else wouldn't I do? I didn't want to carry heavy things. Um, I, you know, rested a lot of the weekend. And I remember every single day of the pregnancy getting home and going into bed and thinking, made it through another day because we didn't know if I'd, I, I didn't know if I was capable of carrying a baby full term because we never knew what, we never really understood what my, I've got endometriosis. So I knew that was a problem, but we didn't really understand what the problem was. So we didn't know if there was a bigger problem that I then couldn't carry the baby. So every single day I worried. And I remember being 33 weeks and my doctor saying to me, if the baby comes now, you'll be okay. 
And I remember just thinking, oh my God, wow, you know, I can't believe I made it this far. Um, but I don't know, I did have a bit of faith. I did, you know, when I fell pregnant, I felt this, is, this has happened naturally against all the odds. This baby's going to make it. I did, I did feel that. I mean, yeah, you, that relief when you got to 33 weeks. Must yeah, been, yeah. Yeah, you must have just yeah. elated completely. Yeah, I, I, I don't think I was elated until I got the baby. I think once I was carrying the baby in my arms, I think then I really believed it. And then you went on to have two other children, absolutely yeah. fine. And, you know, you yeah. have three, three children now. Um, yes. But, you know, in, those, in that second and third pregnancy, did you still carry any of the, you know, the journey that you'd gone on again with you? Or were you at any point able to just enjoy being a pregnant mum? I think I was always anxious. Yeah. I think I was always anxious. I think when you've experienced any kind of problem having a baby, whether it's miscarriages or IVF or anything at all, an ectopic pregnancy, anything, I think in the back of your mind, you're always aware that something can go wrong. You're much more aware. I think once you have that awareness, it never fully leaves you. I think until you've got the baby, and I'm really I'm really superstitious. So I would never buy anything until the baby was born. You know, when the babies were born, I think I took maybe one white outfit to hospital with me and that's all I would buy and then once the baby came I'd say and my mum was like or my mother-in-law they were like out rushing out buying clothes for them because I just didn't feel comfortable going out and buying a whole wardrobe the only time was when I was pregnant with my third child and I already had a boy and a girl and I had two loads of clothing and I, I found out what the sex was because I thought I just want to know mm. should I keep the, the um, girls clothes or the boys clothes that was the only time I really mentally started prepping because I knew what the sex was but with the first two I didn't buy anything till the baby was born how did your family react to that did, were they okay with that or did that ever cause any friction in the sense that you know you've got grandparents that really want to be excited about being grandparents or were they understanding to the no they were understanding they were yeah. totally understanding yeah of course I mean they'd, they'd been through the journey with with us so they were as anxious as we were really oh and yeah for me, I still think you know pregnancy loss and fertility is still one of the the biggest taboos really around women's health you know we don't talk about it enough I no. I was lucky enough to chat to the brilliant Dr Larissa Corder um last week when it was baby loss awareness week and also previously about endometriosis we don't focus on those things enough you know when you think one in 10 women suffers with endometriosis and one in four women will experience pregnancy loss more needs to be done doesn't it because otherwise when it's not working out that's where these feelings of shame and guilt come from Absolutely. I'm actually about to just about to, to join a group that's going to be lobbying the government on these issues to get women's health um, made to be more of a priority. Because if you read, I can't remember the exact statistic, I read it in the paper this week, that something like erectile dysfunction, which only affects a very small percentage of men, so much more time and energy and money is invested into that than any of the topics we're talking about, which affect a much greater number of women. So, you know, again, there's a sexism even within the health. Yeah, the it, you know, terrible. It's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. But I do think the conversation is changing. And again, going back to the influence of glamour, we talk about all of these topics because I do think, you know, we have influence. And, and the more we talk about them, the more likely we are to be able to change the way the government works, the way that laws work. Um, and that's something I'm really proud of, having that influence. 
I mean, definitely, as we've covered, you know, already today, personally, you've you've really put yourself out there over the last few years with different mm. journeys that you've been on. Um, do you mm. think that as we encourage people to have um, open conversation, that it's important for you as the editor-in-chief of, you know, one of the leading female brands out there to be the first person to take that step and open up in sharing experiences? I think we should all be, I think we all should. I think as, the, the more women talk about things, the less shame there is. And that's anything from like money to fertility to anything. You know, when I was younger, nobody talked about their salary. I would never discuss how much money I earn. I've never to this day discussed with one of my best friends how much money any of us earn. Whereas all my team discuss their salary all the time. And I think from a woman's perspective, that's amazing because removing that barrier and the shame around the conversation of money means that it will close the gender pay gap because women will then know what they're, what they're worth, are they being underpaid? And also we want men to also to be talking about those things so then we can find out, are we being paid less than our male counterparts? So I think the more, it's not just a female conversation. I think men also have to be part of this conversation. Um, and I think it's starting to happen and I love that. Definitely. But, uh, you know, as I was, I'm saying kind of, for me, it does start with people like yourself having the bravery to to share their experiences because when you see somebody like yourself sharing that story, it then it encourages, you know, everybody else to kind of go, oh, some somebody's actually put it out there into the public domain and, you know, and, and, and are talking about it. So I feel I can do it as well now. It is that kind of, you know, feature. Um, yes, it does. Listen, I don't know about you, but you know, when I, when I was having problems, I thought I was the only person in the world who couldn't get pregnant. I literally thought I was the only person in the world because nobody talked about having IVF. Nobody talked about miscarriage. Nobody talked about how long it takes you to get pregnant. And you know, actually anything up to a year is quite normal to fall pregnant, but most people don't know that. So after three, four months, they think, oh God, there's something wrong with there's something wrong with me. And I've also found, if I'm being honest with you, people aren't honest. Like a lot of people claim that they fell pregnant very quickly, but I know for a fact that they were trying for a long time. So people aren't always that honest even about their own journeys. And I just don't know how that dishonesty is going to help anybody else. It's a social pressure that we've had yes. placed upon us over so many generations yes. of going, um, well, you know, you've got married, so now you should have the kids and all this yeah. kind of social pressure as a woman because yeah. actually, you're right like I know when I was trying to open up conversations around miscarriage 10 years ago I was absolutely shut down why you? you yeah why would you spoil it for people like why would you spoil it and it's like well I'm not nobody's trying to spoil anything we're trying to actually be realistic and you yeah. know and, and just actually say what the, the figures are and how, how were you shut down how were you shut just down just kind of like when I'd mentioned to another friend about um, the statistics of pregnancy loss and how, you know, to prepare, you, you know, you really should prepare yourself about um, this could happen. Why, why would you say that? Why? Why would you spoil it? And it's like, well, I'm not spoiling anything. I'm trying to open up the conversation of what potentially could happen and what, what you might experience. And it's not that I'm being negative towards your pregnancy. It's that I'm just trying to almost protect you. But it just was not, nobody wanted to talk about it. Nobody wanted to bring it into the conversation. And again, it was mainly women. It was mainly women. Do you that think that's just... changed? Do you, do you find that's changed? Totally. I think it's completely changed. And I think that there's definitely still a lot more that needs to be done, 100%. But the fact that, you know, even you and I can have this conversation now, and the same as when we spoke to Dr. Larissa um, earlier this year, 
it was amazing the response that we got to her episode about endometriosis as well and just how many people were like oh my god it's that thing of putting the hand up and going me as well you know and i i feel i don't feel alone and isolated because i think exactly exactly talking makes others feel less alone and i think that's why i share it and also why shouldn't i share it why should i have any shame around my own life experiences you know uh, yeah I think I think the conversation around shame needs to be had more. Definitely. I mean, even if you, you know, we go back to our earlier conversation about um identity, that I remember and I, I know you talked about it in your piece, um, that 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 line of, but where are you really from? Because <laughs> you almost and then you're almost shamed into going, um, well, um and we're made to feel uncomfortable. Like, why is that? It's a very strange thing. It's a very strange question. I think it just, it makes you feel like you're not really English, you're not British. Even even if you're born, if you're born here, you're always going to be reminded about your ancestry. But it's a bit of a weird one because I'm really proud about, you know, my heritage. I'm really proud of my Middle Eastern heritage. I cook loads of Middle Eastern food. You know, I, I love the Iranian side of my family and all the traditions. I love the Jewish side of my family and all the traditions. But, you know, it's not necessarily, I don't say that I have to explain it the minute I meet somebody. And that's what's, it's just funny that they don't look, that's the first thing someone thinks about you. They're judging you, they're profiling you the second they meet you. And that's why it's a bit of a strange situation. Do you think that's changing now though? Do you know now? No, no, you don't. No, not at all. I think, I think people get profiled all the time. I think it's a, it's like an unconscious bias that we all do. And I think we're only just starting to realize that even in the past six months, you know, I had unconscious bias, I wasn't aware of it. We're all now starting to question our own unconscious biases. And that's an amazing thing. But just because we're talking about it doesn't mean that it's over. I think we've got a long way to go still. Oh, definitely. I completely agree with you. I mean, before we finish up, you know, what is your your hope for the future of Glamour? And and who would be your dream future cover star? Well, my hope for the future of Glamour is that it just keeps going from strength to strength and continues to enlighten and entertain women and educate them where it can and be a fun place to work for everyone who works there. Um, I don't have one person because new people come along all the time. I guess for me, the perfect cover star is someone who stands for something, someone who's got something interesting to say. All the conversations that we're having, someone who's open, who doesn't pretend that their life is perfect, that makes other people, other women feel bad about themselves. I think, I think that's someone who's got something to say is always the most interesting cover star. I mean, that in itself is such a huge shift, isn't it? In the, in the, in the past, it's always been hidden. The celebrity life has always yeah. been hidden. All of yeah. the vices, everything, yeah. it's always been, no, this is picture perfect. And now, now I had this conversation with Rosie Nixon actually a couple of weeks ago about authenticity and how that is so much more um, um, of a focus now. And that's what we want to see from people, isn't it? I think so. I think you want to know who is what, what somebody's about. And also it's, it's, you want them to be relatable. I think, you know, you want celebrities, even celebrities, they're real women, they might be much richer than us. They might live in bigger houses than us. But fundamentally, they're probably having the same problems with infertility. They're much more privileged than us. They can afford umpteen million thousand rounds of IVF without having to blink about it. But fundamentally, you know, the pain that women go through is a universal pain. There's privilege attached that makes some people's situation easier than others. But, you know, a miscarriage is a miscarriage. It's painful for everybody involved, whether you're a celebrity or not. You know, I think we saw that 
completely, you know, a couple of weeks ago with, with Chrissy, Teagan and John Lynch. Exactly. I was actually thinking about her as I was saying that, you know, no amount of fame or fortune is going to take away from the pain that she's just been through. It's horrendous, you know. So, you know, I actually lost, I had, my baby nephew died when he was um, a few hours old. So I've witnessed firsthand, you know, the pain of long term, you know, he was full term, he lived, you know, I've watched my sister go through um, so much pain in the last three years. And it, it, it's, it's the most painful thing you can go through. It doesn't matter who you are. But I think it's so important, as you say, that we do keep having these kind of conversations and that we we pull together, you know, we, we, we stop having that shame attached to, to situations, whether it is money, whether it is infertility, you know, we are... Um, as a society, we do need to come together. You know, we've had the worst year ever. and But equally, in this tough year, it's brought out a lot. You know, when you think, I look, I loved your cover with um, all of the NHS staff. That was amazing. And, and that, was I, my fav- that was my favourite cover we've done. Oh, it was absolutely... You know, you know, we produced that in eight hours. We decided at 12 o'clock that day, it was the first day that there was going to be the, the NHS clap for the NHS. And at 12 o'clock that day, we were like, let's do it. We literally dropped everything we stopped writing anything else and the whole team got on it and we were crazily like texting everybody we know saying do you know anyone do you know a nurse on the nhs do you know a doctor a female doctor we who else do you know works at the nhs and within eight hours we'd got the images in we'd interviewed them we'd written it up and it went out i think two minutes past eight at night so i think that was one from a work perspective that was one of the things i'm most proud about oh it was well for me as a reader i you know i saw it and i was like that is amazing. That is, yeah, it was really cool. And I think that is one of the things, obviously, that's come out of this year of how much we're, you know, rethinking a lot and rethinking the conversations. And, you know, I, I hope and I'm sure it will do. You know, Glamour is going to go on and do and make more amazing things and have those brilliant conversations that does get people talking. Deborah, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you with me today. It's been Thank a pleasure you so talking to you. Thank oh, you for having me. It's been a bit of a dream for me, to be honest, because I've had the opportunity to chat to somebody whose name I've seen in print and pictures, you know, throughout so many key moments in my life. So again, re- I really do appreciate your time with oh, me. I appreciate you asking me. Thank you so much. Thank you. I hope you guys at home have enjoyed being with us too, and that you've managed to shut out some of the noise from the crazy world outside. I hope you've had a lovely, lovely rest. Glamour Magazine is available online at www.glamourmagazine.co.uk and across all social media platforms. If you'd like to keep up with Deborah's busy life as an editor, you can also follow her at Deborah underscore Joseph on Instagram. If you'd like more fashion, well-being and beauty content from us, you can visit our website at www.thecapsule.co.uk where you can also catch up with all of our previous podcast episodes by visiting the In Conversation page and subscribing to any of our podcast channels and YouTube. Please do keep leaving your rates and reviews as I love hearing all of your feedback. It's lovely. If you're a social butterfly, you can also catch us on Instagram and Facebook at Official Capsule. I will be back next week with another very special guest, but all that's left for us to say is goodbye. So goodbye from Deborah. Bye, everyone. And goodbye from me. This episode of The Capsule in Conversation was brought to you by WeCure. Specialists in EMDR, trauma and mindfulness therapy, WeCure offers one-of-a-kind treatments whilst you reflect and heal in the Mediterranean. Reset your mind and well-being. Speak to WeCure. WeCure.co.uk forward slash capsule.